All right, well, hey, while they're taking up offering, i got a question for you to ponder, to, to, to chat with somebody near you. So here's the question. Favorite form of fruit, okay? Favorite fruit item, okay? Uh, what is that? So uh, just take a minute and uh, discuss that with somebody around you, your favorite form of fruit. All right, you guys are slightly more enthusiastic about that question than uh, first hour, but I guess it's not the most exciting question in the world. But um, So how many of you, because I heard it first hour and they, they, they caught on really quick, how many of you used a dessert as your favorite form of fruit, some form of fruit dessert? All right, the sweet tooth in the house. All right, so uh, to be honest with you, this, this might be one of my favorite forms of fruit right there. Uh, this is... Uh, Paula Dean's banana, banana pudding recipe, all right? So this, I think the amount of fruit in it is about 1%, and the amount of butter is about 99%. But uh, it's quite delicious, and my wife has made that on many occasions. But how, So some of you decided to do dessert. Anybody do like candy? Like you're like Starburst, or like I had some kids throwing that in there, or, you know, cherry soda or something like that. Uh, well, in, in my humble opinion, and I, I, I'll be honest, my... Tastes have been kind of an acquired taste over time. If I was a kid, I might have ordered, you know, said some kind of candy or this. But the truth is, the older I get and my palate is more refined, my humble, uh, correct opinion, um, just kidding, uh, my humble opinion is that uh, there's nothing like a fresh piece of fruit. So whatever that fresh piece of fruit, as long as it falls in the category of fresh fruit, um, I'm all about some fresh fruit. And uh, how many of you had just some sort of fresh fruit was your answer who has ever gotten off of the peach truck that rolls up from Georgia? Like one of these peaches where it's like, I don't know how they get up here so quick, but it's like, the, it's right off the, the uh, you know, right off the, is it a tree? A peach tree. Yeah, it's right off of the tree. I'm like, I'm second guessing here for a second. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from, but it tastes really good. Uh, but man, if you've ever had one of those and you sink your teeth into it, it almost just dissolves in your mouth. Uh, how many of you guys have ever, and we're kind of coming into the season right now where you go out and you do the fresh picking of things, you know, anybody do that or take their family to do that? I mean, why in the world would you let somebody else pick your fruit for you when you can go spend 10 times as much and drag your kids kicking and screaming through a dirty field uh, to get the fruit? Because because it's better, right? It's something about that when you pick it yourself, and it is just better. Now, uh, we've started going to Michigan over the last several years, and if you know anything about Michigan, uh, it's like cherry everything up in Michigan. Like, it's all about the cherries up there, and uh, there is just something special about a Michigan cherry, and it's, they're, they're fresh, they're delicious, and it's like everything cherry. And so it's kind of like a win in Rome thing, like win in Michigan, you just eat cherry everything, apparently. And so we, uh, last time we were up there, we went to this place called the Cherry Hut. And I'm talking like this place, like it looks like a cherry. Everything's red. You go inside, all the decor is cherry. Like talk about just cherry, like overload. It is cherry everything. And I went in there, I was like, we'll eat dinner here at this place called the Cherry Hut. And everything on the menu has like some sort of cherry involved in it. And I'll be honest with you, I came out, I was thinking I'd just get like a sandwich or something. I came out of that place called the Cherry Hut with two cherry pies, a Havarti turkey and cherry sandwich, cherry salsa, cherry hot jelly. I should have thrown in a cherry Coke just for good measure, but I, I didn't. 
But I'm like hands full. Jess is like, what did you buy? Like, you're supposed to grab dinner. I'm like, yeah, we got it. We got all things cherry. And uh, it was probably a lot of it just loaded with artificial things. But then just what caught my eye on the way out of the cherry hut was just this fresh farm stand. You know what I'm talking about? One of these fresh farm stands. And it looked something like this. There was just just fresh cherries like all over the place. And I'm like, now that's what I need to get. And I went over, I grabbed one of these uh, things of fresh cherries, took a bite into it. By the way, there should be a warning like these are seeded because I about lost a molar like the first time. You know, it was the first time I was like, oh, okay, that's a yeah, broken tooth. That's okay. It's worth it though because it was so delicious. And when you eat these cherries, there's just something like one of those fresh, sweet cherries from Michigan. And there was nothing like it that I tasted up there. Uh, and there should also be a warning on there that says you will never be able to eat store-bought cherries ever again because there's just no comparison. And so um, really, really enjoyed it. But here's the deal. There's nothing like some fresh fruit. And we kicked off this series last week called Fresh Fruit. And uh, as we talked about this kind of fruit, we're not talking about the kind that you find off the peach truck or the kind of fruit that you might find on a farm stand or in a piece of banana pudding, right? This is not the kind of fruit that we're talking about. We're talking about a much more essential and vital kind of fruit, and uh, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm going to read for you here just a section of Scripture as we get started. This is really the theme verse for this. And what I want you to do as I read this Scripture is I want you just to take a personal inventory. Rather than just me kind of, you know, reading this off and it kind of rushing past us, I just want to invite you, allow God to pierce your heart a little bit on this. When you think about these fruits, I want you to evaluate whether or not these things uh, are alive and well within you and really around you and uh, just take a moment to reflect. So here's, here's what the scripture says, and we're looking in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. It says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are under, not, not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Spend some time with that. I encourage you actually throughout the course of this series and really beyond this series to use that as a litmus test. And I think one of the things that it can indicate for us is really our proximity to Jesus because those things as we talked about last week as we kicked off this series really are found in close proximity to Jesus, the things of the Spirit. And it reminds me of another verse where Jesus tells us, and he speaks of this as well in, in John fifteen five, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much what? Fruit. Apart from me, you can do 
nothing. The simple message in both of these passages is this. Fresh fruit starts with strong roots. And if you're like doing an evaluation and you're saying, man, I'm really dry on those things. Those are the fruit, not fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. So when we do that evaluation, if, if the fruit is not fresh in our life, we should evaluate the roots in our life. The more connected that we are to Jesus, the more in step with the Spirit, the fresher and fuller the fruit in our life. This is really, if I could give you sort of the one-liner for the entire series, it's really, it's really that. The simple message of this entire series is that the closer that you get to Jesus, the more fruitful your life and the things in your life. That's really the summary of the series. So we have to take a step back then if we feel like we're lacking those things. So let's, let's talk about the one that we're talking about today, and that's joy. If you had to do an evaluation of your level of joy, like where is that? How would you say you're doing in the category of joy? And then maybe I could ask this question. How are we faring in the joy department as a society? In fact, if we, if we look, we know that rates of depression, anxiety, Physical pain, suicide are increasing all over the world, especially in rich nations. According to the World Happiness Report, which ranks 156 countries by how happy their citizens perceive them, by how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be, so this is self-reported. Americans reported being less happy in 2018 than they were in 2008. So in that decade, other wealthy countries saw similar decreases in self-reported happiness scores, including Belgium. Canada, Denmark, France, Japan, New Zealand, and Italy. The global, the global Burden of Disease study found that the number of new cases of depression around the world increased 50% between 1990 and 2017 with the highest increases in regions with the highest income, especially in North America. Now, there are certainly clinical reasons for depression and anxiety. That's not what I'm talking about today. But I think we should take a step back and, and, and just get curious for a second. It's interesting because in that same decade, wealth has increased. We have experienced greater levels of safety, relatively speaking. We've seen more advancement in technology than any other decade in time. Modern thinking is more readily accepted than ever. More opportunities and possibilities, you could argue, and more freedoms than any other time in history. Yet we are more unhappy than ever. So what to do with that? Could it be that what the world has sold us just doesn't really work? The things that we chase after, the things that we pursue, and the pursuit of happiness, that perhaps we've been looking in the wrong places and going about it in the wrong way? Yeah, that's kind of a depressing way to start a message on joy, right? Like, we're not very joyful. And that's not the point today. Because I couldn't more strongly believe that there is a true joy to be found. The joy described in Galatians so far exceeds any distorted notion of what the world offers. It's actually derived from a couple of Greek words. The, the Greek word charis, meaning gift, as well as keros, meaning rejoice or expressing joy. You put those two words together, and simply it is a response to God's favor. It's a response to God's gift of grace in our life. This is the biblical understanding of joy. So what I want to spend a little time doing today is talk about what separates joy from any other joy or happiness or anything else that the world could offer today. And the first thing is really vital and important. It seems simplistic and it seems like a Sunday school church sort of answer, but we have to start in this place and that's this. And it comes right back to what we just talked about. Joy is found in Jesus. We could look all over the place for it. 
and we might even get small tastes of satisfaction and temporal joy here and there, but true joy, the kind of joy that it talks about in Galatians, biblical joy, the true joy that we want and need to abound in our life is a joy that is only found in Jesus. I read a great article this week, and much of what I'm about to share, um, I, I picked up in this article by Randy Alcorn where he talks about this idea of biblical joy. And um, when you imagine Jesus, I wonder, do you imagine him as a joyful being? And when you think about Jesus, do you think that like he is a joyful being? In fact, he is the most supremely joyful being in the entirety of the earth. But I don't think we always perceive and think about him that way. Randy Alcorn says a gospel that's not characterized by overwhelming gladness is not the real gospel. And I would add that a Jesus not marked by immense joy is an incomplete picture of Jesus. There is no creature more infinitely and immensely happy than our Lord. Now the Bible clearly teaches that although he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as the prophet says in Isaiah, he also exceeded all of humanity in joy. We see that in Hebrews where it says, You have loved righteousness, speaking of Jesus, and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. Who are his companions? The rest of humanity. That he has an oil of gladness, more gladness than the entirety of the rest of humanity. And so if we're chasing joy, we should go to the source of joy, the most supremely joyful being in all the universe. Jesus, our Lord. So does Jesus want you to be happy? Now, I think we get tripped up a little bit here because we could say, yeah, I, I see Jesus as a supremely happy being, but we've maybe heard something along the lines of God doesn't care about your happiness, he cares about your holiness, right? We use that phraseology sometimes, and it sounds right and it sounds good, but why do we pull those two things apart like they're supposed to be separated? In fact, it's because God cares about your, your true happiness and your true joy, that he cares about your holiness. When we live in obedience to him, it brings about more joy in our life and more fruit in our life. And so, yes, Jesus wants you to be happy. He also wants you to be holy. Because those two things are not mutually exclusive, but those things are married together in harmony. He wants both. He doesn't want you to be holy and to be miserable, but to be joyful to be holy and to be happy. Again, not the world's view of it and world's definition of it, but he wants you to experience true and abundant joy. Now, don't take my word for it. Jesus' own words in John 15 follows a section where he tells them about those who, that we just read, where if you want to bear fruit, you will remain in him. He goes on to say, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So when he talks to us about obedience, he's saying why? Why is he giving us this thing about obedience and, and living in harmony with him and in, in proximity to him? Because he wants our joy to be complete. I love how one uh, version renders this. One version of the scripture says this, I have told you this to make you as completely happy as I am. I mean, imagine that. But that's what God actually wants for you. His intentions for you are good. He wants your joy. You know, the early Christians, they were, despite the immense pressure around them and the persecution that they faced day in and day out, they were marked by an intense joy. They were described as breaking bread with what? Glad and sincere hearts. I love what 
E. Stanley Jones says in his book, Abundant Living, he says that the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look what has come into the world. You see, their joy was in the person of Jesus just as ours is. And so we don't have to look around and dismay and say, oh, look what the world has come to. Rather, we remember and we remind each other of the reality of who has come into the world, our, our source of true joy. Joy comes from Jesus, but it's reinforced by habit. Our ultimate source of joy is found in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we just experience it passively, that we just wait around for that happy day to come. And it doesn't mean that um, it's just a feeling that we have or that we don't have. Biblical joy is so much more than that. When Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice, remember this one, rejoice in the Lord always, and he's like, hey, where you, if you weren't paying attention, let me say it again, rejoice. He uses this word of expression of joy, response to God's favor. He's talking about something that they do in practice, not just something that's a shift in perspective, although that's true too. He's saying this is something that we practice. We, we practice the art of joy. It's not some blind, shallow optimism or positive mental attitude, and, but it's, it's a confidence that's being built that God is truly in control. And I, I can just tell you right now, that takes practice. It takes practice. It takes more practice for some of us than others. I mean, that's just the truth. Some of us, our default, our set point is a little bit lower in the joy category. But for all of us, we can build it through practice. Neurological science actually supports this. It's interesting. There's a neuroscientist named Carolyn Leaf, and she talks about how we can actually rewire our brains through meditation and reflection. Because proteins hold our thoughts, our thoughts literally take up real estate in our brains. I mean, think about that. So the more that we meditate on a positive thought, the larger it grows. As we meditate, then we release dopamine, which determines happiness. It really drives happiness. And so this isn't just some fluffy, like, the power of positive things. I'm talking about, like, this is, this is actually how we're hardwired. The more that we express joy, the more that we practice joy, the more that we work in the art of joy we experience greater levels of joy. It's reinforced through our habits. And so it should cause us to pause and reflect on our habits. Pause and reflect on the, what we're reflecting upon. What are we meditating on? What are we allowing to take up greater real estate in our minds and our hearts? You know, Paul, he's like, listen, like, uh, you know, I'm all for neuroscience. I've been saying this all along, though. Paul's been telling the Philippians, he says, listen, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into what? Into practice. And the God of peace, then, will be with you. Joy is very much a habit. It may be time to make some habits and it may be time to break some habits what are those habits and what kinds of things are they reinforcing both in your head space and in your heart space because ultimately we want joy to abound and joy abounds more and more as we develop the habit of joy and practice it the next thing is important to note is that joy delights in each day it delights in each day the good days and the bad days Jesus instructs his followers, those that would listen, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And then he says each day has enough trouble of its own. So he's not minimizing the fact that we have trouble. He's just saying, hey, we've got to take this a day at a time. 
And we've got to find the joy in each and every day. So it's not, he's not minimizing our pain. He's saying, we can't worry about tomorrow. We have to take this a day at a time. Paul, when he writes those words about rejoicing, he, he writes them in a jail cell. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's where he was when he was writing those words. Was, his circumstances weren't so great. And I don't know if you remember another time that he was in a jail cell with his buddy Silas. And um, what do they do in the middle of the jail cell? They're unjustly thrown into prison. And as they're unjustly thrown into prison, you know, they're not sitting around like, oh, man, like this is so isn't fair. How could God do this to us? Like, we're just out here serving him. We're just out here doing his work. And, ugh, like, I can't believe this. Not like arms crossed. We're not like, hey, somebody get my lawyer, you know? Like, what's the deal? Like, this, we're not, this isn't fair. What do they do? They look at each other like, hey, you know what we should do right now? We should worship. Like, this is a perfect time for worship. Like, let's worship. And so they do. They, they're hymns and praises and prayers to God, and the whole place is like giant earthquake, like in that moment. They use this opportunity, this low point, to say we're going to seize joy in today, in this moment. I think that's a pretty powerful thought. You know, joy is not merely the absence of pain. We've been around long enough to know that joy and pain coexist each and every day. There's not just one season that just has no pain in it. And like, you know, no, we're, we're dealing every day with periods of joy and periods of pain. A lot of times those things go hand in hand. Joy is not merely the absence of pain. It's meeting God in the middle of it. Now, this is not to minimize, by the way, the tough things that we face or say that we shouldn't demonstrate proper concern or care. Obviously, we should be good citizens. We should do the things that God wants us to do here and now. But what I'm saying is that we must not let the threats of tomorrow rob us of the joy of today. Tomorrow has enough trouble. Today has enough trouble of its own. C.S. Lewis, in writing about the time of the atomic age when people were really afraid that like an atomic bomb could just, you know, end this thing, right? And so, there is much talk and obsession over the atomic bomb, and he writes this uh, in the middle of that atomic age in that period. Here's what he says. He says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in the atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might uh, land in your, in, in your, on your land and cut your throat at night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer or of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. And then he goes on to say, in other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all who you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not at all a chance but a certainty. If we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. He goes on to say very succinctly, those who want heaven most have served earth the best, and those who love man less than God do most for man. So those of us that live lives that that, that make that choice to seize the day, whatever that looks like, 
lives that are pointed heavenward that can squeeze life out like a sponge rather than letting our circumstances and our fears squeeze the joy out of us. You know, none of us can control what happens in a day, but we can control how we approach each day. And, and I would challenge each of us to approach it like the psalmist does. Psalm 118.24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Each morning when we, make, when we wake up, we have to make that conscious decision to say, there is joy in this day, and I'm going to squeeze all of the joy out of this day that I can. The next thing that's different about this joy is that this joy peaks when, when life ends. For those who trust in Jesus, for now, joy and pain coexist, but only joy persists. This joy we have never ceases. You know the old hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And Jesus prepares his disciples for a moment of anguish when he departs. He reminds them, listen, you're going to have some anguish, you're going to have some heartache, you're going to have some trouble, but it's only temporary. So he says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me for anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Friends, no one will take your joy away from you. It is secure in Christ. One of the other heavy things that we know has been going on in our world is what's been going on in Afghanistan. And um, there was a report out of Afghanistan this past week that Christians were martyred near Kabul. And um, the underground church had kind of put out this message to, uh, to in- inform uh, those involved with the underground church of, of what had happened. And this, is, well, this was their message that they had posted uh, online. It says that we received news that the underground church in Kabul, uh, Afghanistan, had been martyred. Our friends had been in contact and met together last night in deep prayer. The last words that were spoke by them was this. We feel your prayers because this supernatural boldness came over us and we were singing in the spirit. Even the kids said, Mom, we will not deny Jesus. As they were on the phone, they heard screaming and gunshots. God is so powerful that they went to be with the creator filled with joy. We will be fasting tomorrow for the churches. They went to the creator filled with joy, singing hymns and songs in their moment of greatest anguish. Why? Because they understood that joy peaks when this life ends. So they went to the creator filled with joy, and now joy is all that they know. Last thing I'd like us to think about today is this idea that joy is multiplied in giving. Joy is multiplied in giving and serving. Hebrews 12.2 talks about how Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. I mean, think about that for a second. It's an interesting thing to think about, that Jesus approached what he would endure on the cross with joy, with a spirit of joy. He scorned at shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus approached the greatest sacrifice 
the world would ever know was a spirit of joy. Why? Because he was fulfilling his purpose to the world. He knew all along that's why he came. He'd been talking about it all along. He'd been predicting it all along. And so now, in his hours of greatest need, he approached the cross with joy, knowing what he was doing. Living the life of greatest significance. I mean, Jesus is the example of a life of greatest significance, of greatest sacrifice that's tied to that. What I want to tell you today is that each of us was made for significance. Since we've been throwing neurological things around today, when we serve others, there's this chemical in our brain, it's called serotonin, it's released. It's the chemical that's tied to significance. And so God literally wired us for significance, to find pleasure and joy in serving others. Now our tendency sometimes is to get inward focused and to get obsessed with ourselves and to lose out and miss out on those opportunities to do something small for somebody else. Now, the other thing I think we get stuck on here is that we think that because of that word significance, it has to be something massive, right, something huge. But some of the most significant things we can do are just small acts of service. Like Mother Teresa talked about when she said, uh, there's no great things, only, only small things done with great love. So this is how we can, just a little bit at a time, a little dose of serotonin at a time, rewire our brains and experience significance and reset ourselves up for joy. And so don't underestimate how even the smallest acts of service multiply joy in those, in you and those around you. So today we have kind of a special day around here, and fall is really just a time when we're uh, gearing up for the year in a lot of ways, and I just want to uh, just appreciate the response to community life, and those of you that said yes to that, and those of you that are still considering that, I encourage you to still consider that, uh, but we had a great response to that, and today we're doing Say Yes Day, which is really about recruitment for uh, things, opportunities to, to do what we just talked about, just do significant things here in the body of Christ and uh, as a family of God that we can all be contributors. And so um, one of the things I love about this church is we have just had a culture of that. It's like it hasn't had to be a forced thing. It hasn't had to be a twist your arm kind of thing. It's just people just genuinely want to jump in and, and serve and roll up their sleeves around here. And I appreciate that. And uh, especially as I talk to other pastors I know, and it's it's like hard work getting people involved in serving. And a lot of times it's a few volunteers that do the work of many. But we've seen a really great response in this area. So as we approach Say Yes Day, I'm, I'm confident we're going to see a great response again as, as, as uh, needs get met around here. Um, and as I thought about this, you know, I'm not really a math guy, but I, I did a little math. It's, 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 I hope I did it right. Somebody's going to check my work. Uh, but I want you to consider for just a second that when we were talking about saying yes, say, saying yes to a rotation to serve kids, saying yes to, uh, to, to being a part of the morning tech crew and, and running cameras and, and doing these kinds of things, or uh, saying yes to, to jumping in on some cleaning and putting some worship music in and just, you know, going, um, I was going to say Mary Poppins, but I don't know if that's a, you know, I don't know. But um, it's funny, too, because everybody that does the cleaning team, they always have headphones in, and I always scare them. Like, I'll be like, I didn't mean to, but I'm like, I'm, like, I'm going to scare them because I'm going to come around the, it happens. Anyway, I digress. But anyway, these are just different areas. If you're, you're getting involved with the grounds team, or there's a lot of areas where you could get involved. Now, if you equate that to saying yes to one hour a week, which sounds like a lot, like, whoa, what? one hour a week, that's a lot. But if you do the math, it's less than half a percent of your overall time in a month. If you did 
four hours in a month. That's only half a percent of your overall time. And so I just want you to consider just what a, a difference that small little half a percent difference really makes around here to say, you know what, I don't know how much I can give or what I can do. And, and here's the other thing. I know that it's like everywhere we're being asked to do something else or to sign up for something else or, you know, guilted into doing this or into that. And that's not this. But I, I will tell you, there is joy in serving others. I know a lot of you guys do that outside of this place too. But we all have a responsibility, the body of Christ, to jump in in ways big and small. And so I would just ask you to consider that. We've got opportunities up on the wall out there. If you pull one of those cards down, just fill out your name, and, uh, and, and we'll follow up with you. Now, again, there's a variety of different time commitments, too. So you can kind of uh, decide um, what small step you'll take. You might be like, hey, I can't do four times a, a month yet, but I, you know, or, or four hours a month, but I could, I could start with one. Like, show me how I can be used for one hour and then go from there. Um, hey, it's free serotonin. I'm giving you opportunity, you know. So um, we're going to spend some time here in just a minute then closing out and really worshiping and leaning into this idea of joy. And uh, the band's going to come back up. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, but I want you to think about this proverb that talks about this idea that he who refreshes others will be refreshed. You should consider in this next season, how might you find joy in refreshing someone else and see your own refreshment? We're going to sing a song here in just a little bit. It's one of my favorite songs we've been doing lately. It's called House of the Lord. It's just like the chorus is just there's joy in the house of the Lord, you know? And so I don't think we can whisper that song. I'm just telling you that. Like, I, I think we really have to sing that one out and really like shake the place as we sing that song. So if there's joy in the house of the Lord, we got to sing like there's joy in the house of the Lord. And So we're going to have one more opportunity to really walk out of here with a spirit of joy into the week. And I, I can just tell you that's the best way to walk into uh, the next week. So I want to encourage you to tap into that uh, as we sing here in just a minute. Let me pray for us. God, I just want to thank you today that today is a day that you have made. And we rejoice and we want to be glad in it, God. And I pray that as we continue to step out into the rest of the week and the rest of the month, into the next couple months, I know we don't all know all of what, what those things hold for us, God, but I just pray that we would choose joy, that we would make a choice and a habit of choosing joy and trusting in you and um, I know that right now even people are facing a lot of different challenges in their own lives, and uh, we see challenges around us, God, but in the midst of that, God, in the midst of our circumstances, God, help us to just take hold of you and find the joy that only comes from Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.